You're listening to Giving a Fuck is the New Black, and I'm your host, Joe Lorenz. Join me and my guests each episode as we endeavour to give several serious fucks and discuss climate change, intersectionality, conscious lifestyle, politics, and of course, sustainability. So today on Giving a Fuck is the New Black, I will be talking about mental well-being in the Anthropocene with my wonderful guest, Tori Choi. Tori is a climate activist and communicator based in Bristol, UK, yet originally from my other hometown, Hong Kong. She recently had the opportunity to sail across the Atlantic Ocean as part of the environmental think tank called Sail to the COP, where her journey was sponsored by the one and only Stella McCartney. As well as her ongoing project activism, Tori is also a mental health advocate. And so today we're going to chat about how the ongoing climate crisis is impacting people's mental health. Yet more than this, about how tackling climate anxiety and addressing the climate crisis are actually intrinsically linked. And thus, whether understanding and exploring your own mental health and well-being actually makes you a better advocate for planetary health. Hello, lovely Tori. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. And I just want to say that introduction was textbook. It was fantastic and hey. <laughs> oh, huge pra- shout out. Lovely. I have you. practiced it and I've got my <laughs> um I've got my podcast voice on. My husband heard me the other day and he's like, well, You've got a podcast voice. And I thought, Oh I love it. It's fantastic. Thank you very Absolutely much. Absolutely fantastic. And thank you for having me. You are so welcome. You sip on your coffee and I will sip on my wine and the world will be good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, my dear, you've been a climate activist for some time now. So talk us through how it all began. Oh, that's a good question. So, you know, I'm sure you can imagine the climate conversation. I don't know if your little ones have experienced this, but maybe things have changed a little bit. But in school, it wasn't really part of um, anything that kids were engaged with or talked about so anytime I they do now actually it's kind of it's yeah. brought into the curriculum a little bit more which is excellent that's fantastic because you know growing up in Hong Kong um, environmental issues were kind of talked about but not really at the fore of our curriculum and so anytime there was anything remotely environmental I just like latched onto it and lapped it up and was like this is a problem um, and I had a very obsessive personality. So, you know, I'd become very obsessed with different causes. And I can remember being in school and kind of being really pernickety about like turning lights off and like reducing meat consumption and all of these sorts of things. Um, and so I feel like that really fed into this sort of persona that I embody now of being a climate activist. But it wasn't until I moved to Bristol in the UK that I started getting quite involved in this. I moved here initially because I was really um, interested in being part of the wildlife filmmaking industry. So Bristol's the home of the blue chip documentaries, Planet Earth and Blue Planet and all the David Attenborough stuff comes out of Bristol. And it has a really fantastic, yeah, a really fantastic wildlife filmmaking scene. Um, and I was very concerned about the impact of the climate crisis on biodiversity and wildlife because my, I have a background in conservation and ecology. So, you know, I didn't think I wanted to be a research scientist. So I wanted to be a communicator and talk about wildlife and uh, climate crisis. But then I started feeling a little bit disillusioned, um, a bit impatient, almost. I felt like the wildlife filmmaking industry was so inspiring and so captivating, but didn't necessarily fit with my kind of outspoken, boisterous persona of come on people, where are the hard-hitting facts and, you know, let's actually speak up and, and get angry. And, and I think that's a huge part of my personality. That's called passion. That's a good thing. Yeah, well, I'd like to look at it that way. Some folks might see it slightly <laughs> differently. Oh, but, they're wrong. Um... They're wrong. You're right. I'm right. We're right. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. It's the validation I needed for the morning. Um, and yeah, and so essentially after that, kind of realization I started getting more involved with Extinction Rebellion that was kind of what was on my doorstep um XR is from Bristol so you know I got involved with XR and started going to protests and really kind of realized how big this problem is and how little I really knew about it from an intersectional lens and that's when I started diving deep and it wasn't until the Stella campaign that I was like right this is what I want to dedicate my life to. Um, so here I am. Right. 
So tell us a little bit about the the Stella campaign for people that don't know what that exactly was. Yeah, so basically, I think it was April last year, uh, I got an, uh, a message in my Instagram inbox from the creative director of Stella McCartney. She'd seen some little short video pieces that I'd made for Extinction Rebellion on the, on their main social channel. Uh, and she'd asked if I wanted to get involved with the campaign. Now, bearing in mind... That's a cool one to get in the old DMs. It is, just casually sliding into the DMs. And um, yeah, it's funny because those XR videos were terrible. They were absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> at the time, you know, in hindsight, they were terrible. But at the time, I was like, these are the best things I've ever made. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of cringe at, at how she may have stumbled across them. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't really think much of it. But then I went to the April spring uprising in London and I got approached in the street by two women who also identified as being from Stella McCartney. And they were like, are you Tory? And I was like, yes. <laughs> who are you? And they were like, we're just going to take some photos of you if that's OK. And I was like, OK, sure. Uh, and then uh, 24 hours later, I got an email from the creative director being like, hey, can you hop on a train to Wales tonight? We're going to be shooting this campaign pretty much next day. So I was like, oh my gosh, uh, okay. Had no idea what it entailed. At first, I just thought it was some digital campaign where they required me to film something with my phone and be like, I support the planet. Um, and mm. then, you know, I got whisked off to this random place in Wales on a bus with some other models and activists and, you know, rocked up to this site and there were film crew everywhere and RVs everywhere. Wow. It was huge. I mean, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. And then they're like, mm. right, so we're filming Stella's winter campaign um, and you are going to be <laughs> centre stage of this. And I was like, huh? Oh, my Lord. Um, and so what materialised right. was essentially uh, this winter campaign, an ode to the planet. It was written, it, you know, they made a film and it was written by Jonathan Safran Foa, and narrated by the Dame Jane Goodall, which oh, blew wow. my mind. Um, I didn't pick up that it was her. Yeah. I mean, I've watched it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was very cool. It was Jane. And um, yeah, that, that's the Stella campaign. And uh, it was very transformative, one, one could say. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. I mean, gosh, it doesn't happen every day, does it? I, I guess I should just quickly um, interject here with, just in case there's any folks listening that don't know what Extinction Rebellion is, um, I mean, feel free to butt in, but as far as I'm, the way that I would describe it, it's an environmental movement uh, that uses nonviolent civil disobedience to force government into action around climate change and um, biodiversity and things like that. Is that how you'd describe Couldn't it? Couldn't have said it better myself. That's, yeah. Great. That's Great. Well, there we go, listeners. Now you know. <laughs> okay. So the work and the campaign with Stella McCartney, then um, did that, is that what led on to the sale to the COP journey? It's really interesting because I, Instagram, I'm like, wow, it's just so powerful. Somebody slid into my DMs and was, was like, I found your profile through somebody else. And uh, there's this thing where we're sailing across the Atlantic Ocean to go to the COP25. Would you like to join? <laughs> And I was like, yeah. And this person is actually one of my friends now. Um, I met them through this initiative. And um, basically, I emailed them and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in what this project entails. Admittedly, it's not my area of expertise, sailing and also the think tank that we worked on. But I'm interested in learning. Hey, more. you've just been a supermodel. <laughs> if you can be a supermodel, you can do anything. <laughs> Yeah, I was feeling mighty powerful at this point. I was like, yeah, I, just, I was just in this campaign. So like, yeah, you yeah. go, girl. I love it. <laughs> um, and essentially they were kind of saying, yeah, there's definitely space, but there isn't space for a participant. There's space for a partner. So essentially you would have to have a sponsor who would be willing to pay X amount of money to get you onto this sailboat. Um, and it was a lot of money. Uh, and so when I first saw that amount of money, I was like, bloody hell, there is no way I'm going to be able to raise that, that dosh in, in such a short amount of time. Um, and I just kind of had a bit of a light bulb moment. I was like, who in my sphere has a lot of money and cares about the environment? Um, 
And yeah, I just finished the campaign with Stella. So I sent her an email and I said, look, there's this thing. It's, you know, about taking youth to the UN climate conference by sailboat. Would you like to sponsor me? And to be very honest, I really didn't expect her to say yes. I'd almost consigned myself to spending December time in the UK, just, you know, sitting indoors, watching a bit of Netflix, chilling. And next thing I know, I get a phone call from one of her team members saying, we'd love to sponsor you the full amount. And I was like, "Eh." (laughs) so That's so amazing. Yeah, and just like that, uh, I went from kind of just expecting to be in the UK for the next six months to preparing for the trip of a lifetime. And um, yeah, Stella and I worked together on this. They did some comms, but unfortunately the COP was relocated to Madrid and that kind of fluffed things up a bit, but we still managed to work on the think tank and produce an output and worked remotely on the sailboat, which was really cool. Brilliant. And what was the actual sailing boat experience like? (laughs) Oh, God. Um, To be very frank, it was hard. It was really hard. I, you know, disclaimer, never sailed in my life. Um, Suffer from motion sickness to... Yeah, I'm, I'm a motion sickness gal myself. So the idea just makes me feel green. It was really challenging emotionally and physically. I think that, um, there's a I I wouldn't go so far as to say there's a misconception but there's definitely an attitude about sailing which is very romanticized and people just think oh yeah casually sailing across the Atlantic Ocean I mean we endured storms I barely slept for three months um yeah it was intense yeah a pretty arduous journey I mean you do you're exactly right when I think of sailing I think of like Grace Kelly sitting on a yacht with Bing Crosby and she's wearing like a cool um, Breton shirt. In my head when I think of it, I'm like, oh, all these beautiful youths sailing across the ocean to save the planet. How romantic. But you're right. It was probably just like a frat house at 12 (laughs) o'clock. Lots of sick people crammed into the one area. And the thing is, right, the sights and the sounds and the experiences that I got to be a part of definitely definitely it was worth it it was worth it would I sail again anytime soon probably not but um it really taught me a lot and it really made me appreciate the little things in life you know being able to fall asleep without nearly worrying about falling out of your bed for instance um not having to worry about the lice infestation on board, not having to worry about, yeah, it was intense, not having to worry about being nutrient deficient, that was a thing. Um, You know, I could actually have a shower every day and just not feel sticky and humid and gross. So, yeah, really, really transformative. The climate movement at the moment, is it, um, is it intersexual enough? No. <laughs> that, was, that came across very blunt. No. Uh, I, yeah. Hmm. So what I've gathered from the experiences of, I guess, being part of the European climate movement and more specifically kind of within the UK is Extinction Rebellion, for instance, was my first, I guess you could say, foray into environmentalism and... It was a, you know, don't get me wrong, it was a good place to start. But the movement is largely dominated by middle class white people, which, you know, have the privilege to take time off work, to protest about things, not worry about their safety, have the resources. um, And one could even argue, you know, the, the insight to what's happening to our planet because they have the time or, dare I say, the luxury to think about the climate crisis, whereas other people are trying to make ends meet. And the other side of of kind of what I've been exploring is the idea that the global north completely dominates and homogenizes the climate movement. And, you know, I'm sure we'll kind of touch upon this a little bit later, but there was a project that arose from Sail to the Cop, which aimed to amplify voices of the global south in Latin America and Caribbean. And I just just came to realise that, you know, 
so much of what I know about the climate crisis and all the activists that I knew were all from Europe. Um, and that was really, yeah, that was a really big wake up call for me because also we have to think about who's most vulnerable to the climate crisis and also causes the least amount of damage. And it's ultimately people from the global south. And a lot of them hold the answers um, to how we can mitigate this crisis and how we can adapt. And they have very unique perspectives that are often not taken on board because of, well, the way that the world has unfortunately homogenized a lot of climate activism and, and a lot of perspectives. It's very much, you know, Eurocentric, in my opinion. No, you're right. Um, I guess looking forward then, how can we ensure that the future of climate activism and all sustainable movements, I suppose, is diverse and inclusive and includes the, the voices of people in the South? So, you know, kind of from the perspective of the project that I'm currently working on, which is called Sail for Climate Action. So it was born out of um, Sail to the Cop and we reached Colombia at the end of our sailing journey and a friend of mine turned to me and said it would be such a waste to not make a project out of the sailboat going back so let's try and do something that holds a lot of meaning with Latin American and Caribbean youth. So you know from the perspective of kind of this initiative it is focused on amplifying these voices and I definitely feel like there should be initiatives like this which are solely focused on the amplification of voices which are really you know, marginalised and unheard in the climate movement. But for pre-existing organisations that, you know, already have a very uh, dominant presence in Europe or the global north as a whole, there definitely needs to be more spotlighting on, you know, um, global south activists and more opportunities for members of the global south to speak in places of power. And I think that kind of ties into what our project was doing, which is it was going to take these youth to the UN Climate Conference in Bonn, Germany. So there's the COPs at the end of the year, and the ones in Bonn are the intersessionals, where actually most of the decision-making processes take place. So we thought it was really important to have youth from these countries represented in this space of power. And, you know, I think that's a pretty good place to start. Get them heard bring them to places of power where decisions are being made, but also from, you know, a more casual um, climate movement activism realm of like online communities and climate striking. I think, for instance, Fridays for Future Digital, they've got this campaign called Defend the Defenders at the moment, which is all about indigenous protectors and people who know the land, who fight for the land, who are essentially the OG environmental activists. And spotlighting you know these people who have been essentially earth guardians for their whole existence is essential and people coming together and giving agency and attention to these people I think that's really powerful yeah I couldn't have a harder agree on that one I'm using our own personal privilege to pass the mic is incredibly powerful and maybe some of the best things that sometimes can happen now, look, as I mentioned in the opener, as well as a climate activist, you're also a mental health spokesperson, having recently posted on Instagram about your diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and your consequent happiness of said diagnosis. So I just <laughs> wanted to talk about what the diagnosis means and how you got to this point and all the rest of it. Yeah, sure. So borderline personality disorder, as the name suggests, it's a personality disorder. I, you know, it's interesting because it's it's typified a disorder and in many respects it has had very negative impacts on my mental well-being and my life. But I, I kind of try and normalise conversations sometimes by calling it a condition or talk about my mental well-being. So, yeah, I'll kind of say that my condition is something that affects the way that I interact with people. And it's it's interesting because a lot of people will not necessarily notice anything with me because I'm naturally a very bubbly, very um, outgoing, I think, extroverted person. But what the condition manifests as is in moments where, you know, I have very strong relations with people and invest a lot of my emotional attention and energy. If someone were to do something that would typically upset someone, 
I really feel it to the core. I think that's one of the most um, obvious things about this condition. So I think folks who don't have borderline will probably be able to just write off a lot of things in the moment and be like, oh, this person's just having a bad day. You know, they're reacting like that. Um, and I'm, I'm at a point in my life now where I can do that. But there are definitely moments in my life where I haven't been able to just sit with feelings and be like, no, that's just this person. Like they, these feelings can really manifest and eat me up and, and make me feel really mm. uh, weighted. And that's one of the things that I've noticed is it, it makes me a very sensitive person, uh, which, you know, I've I've expressed that I'm happy with the diagnosis because in many respects, I realised that the things that typify borderline personality disorder are actually some of my greatest strengths at the same time. So the sensitivity that I employ with my emotional relationships and the way that I bond with people, I mean, it hasn't always been pretty, you know, not realising what I had meant that it was very confusing to navigate. But upon realising, I realised that I'm very sensitive, not only in the way that people treat me, but the way that I empathise with other people. So I see it as one of my strengths now which is yeah I think that helps destigmatize the condition completely agree your your diagnosis is your power to move forward and I think I I am happy for you it also you and I have talked um, about how mental well-being and climate activism are kind of inherently linked I mean I uh, you know let's let's talk about this tell me what you think about this so I found that over the last few years, the buzzword eco-anxiety has really come to the fore. And to me, eco-anxiety, I think at first I was kind of like, is that really an inclusive term for the plethora of different mental conditions people experience as a result of the climate crisis? And I've kind of come to realise that it's a bit of an umbrella term and like so many things that you're affected by as a result of learning about the climate crisis fall within this. And I just find that As the world becomes more and more engaged in this conversation, more and more information gets out there, folks are becoming more invested in the climate movement, and that has an emotional and physical weight on people. And as someone with predispositions to mental health conditions, I have found that these conversations and this knowledge definitely exacerbates negative aspects of my mental well-being. And, you know, when I say it exacerbates these negative aspects, it's not to say that I can't harness those and and use them for good and use that to motivate my activism, because that's essentially what I've done. Um, The climate crisis is undoubtedly extremely heavy, but in recognising how it impacts my mental well-being, I think I've opened up dialogue and tried to create a space, at least online and within my networks offline, where it's okay to talk about how the planet's health is affecting your own health. And in doing so, I actually think that that motivates people to sit with these feelings, look intrinsically, think about how to help themselves through this, but also how using these emotions can be really, really useful in motivating direct action and taking action. Um, within reason because obviously everyone's different but at least for me you know I've I've seen these emotions as as tools and they really motivate me to take action. That's so important to be able to turn it into a tool. I, I recently read a survey by the environmental charity uh, Global Action Plan mm. and it, this, the survey revealed that one in three teachers are seeing high levels of climate anxiety in their students. Wow. And alongside, I know, and alongside of this, a survey saying that approximately 77% of students say that thinking about climate change makes them feel incredibly anxious. Mm-hmm. So I think there's no mistaking that we're seeing a huge rise in eco-anxiety and depression, particularly amongst younger people. So I guess you were talking about the umbrella term, but how do you really define what eco-anxiety is then? I think eco-anxiety, for me at least, um, well, I guess it's a very personal thing, but for me it entails how I respond and react to the environmental crises and also how there's a lack of inaction being taken as a result of the climate crisis. So my emotional and actually physical manifestations of reacting to this can entail worrying 
almost feeling powerless at some points, you know, this anxiety that that sits within you of what the future is going to look like. What can you do? And this idea of feeling powerless is, you know, Mm. thinking about individual change and, and thinking, I'm just one person on this planet and it feels paralyzing to think I can't make a difference. And also feeling depressed about the state of the world. So eco-anxiety is, like I mentioned, the umbrella term, but for me actually manifests more as depression. So every time I read something in the news, every time I see something that makes me feel very almost hopeless sometimes, I do notice the depression creeping in and feeling very numb in many ways as well. Um, And then there's also the side of it, which I don't think is talked about as often, which is eco-rage for me. If I see Mm. something that upsets me, a lot of the time it actually manifests as me feeling angry. And, you know, anyone who knows me on social media knows I will post about something and you can tell there's like (laughs) this essence of just like, ah, behind it. Um, And that is something that I've noticed more and more, just this like anger. And, you know, um, a few of my friends have been posting about this lately and talking about this toxic positivity of like good vibes Mm -hmm. only. And this for me really goes hand in hand where I'm just like this rage is exactly what fuels me to do something and to be an activist. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of how it manifests for me. Yeah, eco-rage is definitely a real thing and mm. <laughs> something that I experience on a daily basis. Um, I, I think looking at eco-anxiety, it's currently not recognised as an actual, quote, quote, psychological phenomenon. Do you think it should be? Yes, definitely. Um, I think that there is something about psychological diagnoses and things making it into the DSM, which legitimises a mm. lot of feelings. Um, and it's almost like a validation of, of these things being very real. And, you know, there have been lots of issues with the DSM in the past and the way that they've created diagnoses and the way that things have been termed. But aside from those really tragic and terrible, um, you know, manipulations of, of people's sexuality and gender identity, the DSM does stand, in my opinion, as something which can validate people's emotions. And for me to see, for instance, my condition existing within the DSM um, to be recognised by medical professionals means that there's so much more tailored support and understanding around it. And one of my followers had actually reached out to me saying that they have a condition that's not even recognised in the DSM and that means it's so difficult for them to get support. So they have this... Oh, so hard. You don't have that validation at all. And how Mm -hmm. do you, I mean, how do you relate and how do you think that it's natural that you're experiencing what you're experiencing? Yeah. So hard. Yeah, and they were kind of describing how their condition means that they're very prone to daydreaming um, and and kind Mm. of like feeling really uh, absent from conversations and situations. And it is a recognised thing within the spheres that she's using as resources to learn more about this but within that's you know consensus of, of professionals it's not recognized and and she's expressed the negative effect on on her for that and so kind of using that as a bit of an example I feel like folks who suffer from eco-anxiety um, you know may not feel as validated or feel like they have any onus in taking control of their situation and their mental well-being because of the fact it's Mm. not legally recognised or or professionally recognised, rather. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. You look at other anxieties and disorders and things that psychologists and psychiatrists face with their clients, you know, things like, I don't think my friends will like Mm. me or I'm afraid my spouse will leave me, that kind of thing. These anxieties are often born from a sense of insecurity or, you know, imposter syndrome, which is where people feel like that that they're actually a fraud. But if you look at climate change and eco-anxiety, it's grounded in a lot of real-time data. It's not an anxiety founded upon an insecurity. It's an anxiety founded upon what is actually happening. People who are experiencing this eco-anxiety and having climactic concerns are having a natural response to a very real problem occurring on our planet. But as you touched on, the positive thing here is that the cure to climate anxiety is the same as the cure for climate change itself, and that is action and doing something. Mm. It's about 
getting out and doing something and the action leads to cure and the continuing inaction simply leads to more personal and planetary devastation, which segues nicely into me asking you um, what tangible actions we can all take against climate change and what are the best mitigation and adaptation behaviours we can adopt for a healthy mind and environment? I really love that question. And I think to kind of give a little bit of context of, of things that I've I've learned quite recently is it's interesting that we're talking about how mental health diagnoses and dealing with climate anxiety can often be not cured, quote unquote, but um, eased by taking direct action, which in many respects is a bit of a catch 22, because I feel like people who suffer from anxiety, often the last thing they want to do is just suddenly like (laughs) bring themselves to do something so radical. Um, And also it's a really, I've like come to realise that so much of it is a lot of ableism. And for me, being able to take direct action as a result of my mental health, I'm very privileged to do so. So for me, exploring this realm of like what tangible things can people do I think it's a lot more diverse than things that I've previously done in my past to alleviate mental health um, suffering. But, you know, speaking from the first and foremost perspective of what I do, I mean, protests are very therapeutic. But again, like I mentioned, not everyone can attend protests. It's a very privileged thing to do. But something that I think has arisen, which has been extremely powerful, is how the climate conversation is continuing on social media and how there are communities that exist out there where you can get involved and you can do your climate strike online. You know, every Friday, this is continuing with Fridays for Future Digital. And if you want to think about how you can mitigate your mental health suffering, but also think about what you can do to help the climate, I really feel like getting engaged with community is very powerful. And... With time, I have started to embrace the concept of top-down change as opposed to bottom-up because I feel like everyone's first foray into environmentalism is usually met with a lot of guilt and self-criticism and individual change that people try to instigate. Um, And with time, I've come to realise that it's so much more complex and we have to fight the system. Um, Absolutely. So for me, you know, it's just shaming people for their individual actions. It's just so complicated because it's just riddled with, in many ways, like inequality and privileges and conversations that we really need to have. But also this attention is best directed, in my opinion, to systematic change. Um, And so, yeah, like by all means, if you want to adopt a plant based diet, if you want to go zero waste, if you want to sustainably travel, I think those are really empowering things. And I think they're great. Um, But as a more seasoned climate activist now, I I made those individual swaps um, and maybe those have been the foundation for me to start tackling other issues like intersectionalism and inequality and racial environmentalism eco-fascism and all of these things that I'm starting to explore um and yeah to be part of those conversations through social media I think is something that is accessible to a lot of people at the moment so that's the thing that I would champion the most I I love it so much and you're so right I mean the name and shame game (laughs) that has happened for so long with people that really kind of, I suppose, are essentially all on the same side and yet we spend too much time fickly fighting each other, whereas what we really should be doing is using that energy um, to make the powers that be and systemic change and all the rest of it. And if we look at mitigation, we really need to radically be developing lower carbon lifestyles in a sustainable society and, you know, you can't do that from a one-person man band. If you look at adaptation, we need to be ready to help environmental migrants and future climate refugees and to ensure our future health systems and all our systems are robust and resilient. And we need to do this by demanding for it now from our policymakers and our politicians. And, you know, no amount of um, personal shaming or so forth is going to do that. It's really about lobbying and getting out there and, you know, talking to the powers that be and forcing their silly little hands (laughs) Um, you know especially little on some of the leaders Mm -hmm. I think but anyway 
Now, um, now you know, I know that you know that I am a mum of little ones and that my husband and I chat to them about climate change all the time. I sometimes receive, um, or not sometimes, often receive flack about this. Some people saying that I shouldn't do it, they're too young, I shouldn't be talking to them about it. Um, What do you think about this? I think you're right on. Like, I think that what you're doing is phenomenal and really admirable. Yeah, thank you. It's, It's so noble in many ways and it's so needed and I think that it's it's powerful um obviously I think there is a lot that folks might make assumptions oh like oh you can't tell little ones these sorts of snippets of information because they're really heavy and and if there's one thing that I've learned from being a daughter myself um it's that parents who hide things from you it just doesn't work (laughs) no it does Uh, not exactly it just ends up being way more toxic and it actually in many respects can sever the trust between parent and child I I've experienced that and you know I know that everything's relative and in my case it's not necessarily about the conversation around the climate crisis but you know as an example my mother was very sick at a certain point and the only way that I found out my mum had cancer was from my cousin who sent me a message on, on Messenger and, and he said, I'm so sorry to hear about your mum. Has the operation gone well? And I went, oh, oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, God. And it comes from a place of love. And I'm sure that folks who have expressed um, disdain with styles of parenting where folks are talking about what's happening to the climate, it comes from a place of love and, and obviously wants to protect and and cherish the phase and and growth of childhood. But I've just found that, at least from my experiences, that honesty and the sooner you start talking about these things, the more equipped folks can be to tackle and deal with these sorts of um, hardships. And I think that more and more parents should start engaging and start thinking about how they can talk to their young ones about the climate crisis if they know about it if they have you know the the privilege to do so or they're folks who are engaged with this conversation um and i think it's Mm. very admirable and i can't imagine it's easy um and i i it makes me wonder kind of what communities are out there fostering you know this sort of conversation um between parent and child but I, I think it's fantastic and I think it's, yeah, really, really needed. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I agree. I, I see it as a double thing. I mean, as a parent, for one, if you're talking to your children about climate change, then you're ultimately controlling the narrative. Mm. You're ultimately able. It's like it's like the birds and the bees talk. If you have that conversation with your children, then they're going to hear it from a scientific a safe place and all the rest of it and blah, blah, blah. They don't want to hear it from the dipshit bully Todd in the playground who's going to say it all crassly and disgusting, you know, and it'll scare the hell out of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, if you can control the narrative, then you can control how um, levels of, you know, the levels of which they would understand and what, what they should be hearing from. But also it forces you as a parent to understand it more. You know, we understand it from an adult point of view, but when you have to break it down to explain it to a, a four and a five and a six and a seven year old, suddenly you need to think about it in a much more uh, simplistic level and that's very helpful. So mm. I think it's really important that people start dealing with it. You know, the conversations I have with my kids, they're not terrible. I mean, they're, they're only young. Yeah, Jude sure. just turned five the other day and Harry's only six. So, <laughs> Yay, Judo! He was so happy. Blessing. End of the day, he was like, oh, I've had the best day. And I'm like, oh, oh my heart. God, they are. So cute. They are adorable. No, he's adorable. Little things, but... <laughs> Anyway, like having the chats with them, they just, it's just matter of fact. Climate change is something that's happening. Um, and we do certain things to help fight climate change. Mummy and daddy do certain things to help fight climate change. Like if we go to a toy store, whatever, and they see a toy and they say, oh, it's plastic though. We don't want that one. Like they just are inherently thinking that way. It doesn't mean they sometimes don't want the plastic crap ones. But, you know, generally they try and they are already thinking in that way, you know, Yes, there's privilege to that and all the rest of it. And God, no, they're not perfect little children. They're the last holes at times. <laughs> but, you know, at least they're, they're, they're growing up with this awareness and this just 
it is fact around them. It doesn't scare them. It, it empowers them because they have this knowledge. I think given your knowledge of how older generations have often simply dismissed climate change and the experience you had with your mother, which I'm so sorry about, um, and the ang- eco-anxiety that's really felt by your generation, how can we ensure that the next generation doesn't have to face the same scrutiny and disregard? And what advice, if any, do you have for parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles or whatever about talking to the younger generation about the climate crisis? So it's really, really empowering to see how you chat to your little ones because I think that is literally the perfect example of why climate education and climate conversation has to start young. And I want to see these conversations happening in institutions as well, in schools, in, you know, nurseries, I dare I say nurseries, but, you know, within contexts where kids are being educated. Um, And time and time again, the conversation comes up that climate education is so poor in schools, not even from, you know, this uh, conversation that we're having about talking about it, but also scientifically within science classes or geography classes or wherever folks get their information about the climate crisis it's just so poorly represented and so I really feel like education is a fantastic place to start and I don't know about you but I used to work in a science museum so I was always surrounded by young kids and kids are so powerful and so incredibly passionate and in many ways they kind of see the world as not black and white per se but if a kid sees something that's wrong they'll go that's wrong I see that and that's wrong whereas adults kind of tend to have this more sort of nuanced way of kind of going well there's this and that and and you know both perspectives are valid but I've just found children so empowering when they come up to me and they say I learned about this that's happening to the orangutans or I learned about this that's happening to the oceans and plastic and and they'll be like this is wrong and this is why I'm doing this I'm not going to buy unsustainable palm oil I'm not going to eat beef and like all of these things Um, Mm -hmm. and I feel like it just goes to show that when you give kids that space to learn about what's happening to the planet they're actually little activists they make decisions they have so much agency I think a lot of folks kind of write kids off as you know and my dad used to say this terribly toxic thing to me growing up which was children should be seen not heard and I couldn't oh oh gosh I know and I couldn't disagree with that more because I feel like when you give kids the space to be educated to learn about these things they have so much agency and in doing so they actually create conversation within their families so folks who are parents or grandparents or older generations you know I actually feel like a a child can open up that conversation and then there can be some sort of reciprocal exchange there and that's really powerful but if if the education system isn't really necessarily providing kids with this sort of um you know information or or kids aren't really initiating this stuff I mean why would we expect this they're children and they should be free to grow up and you know they're learning lots of different things then I would encourage parents to research the climate crisis within their own means and slowly start bringing it up in a way that isn't daunting per se but ask your child what they think or ask your child how they feel about something because that also encourages kids to look within their emotions and start processing emotions from a very young age and it can be really stifling when perspectives kind of revolve around oh so these are the facts just take them on board but don't really sit with those emotions and pick apart how that makes you feel Um, and that mindfulness that that parents can kind of encourage kids to adopt I think can be really powerful Um, and you know I'm far from being a child but I have been doing a lot of inner child work or reflecting on my childhood and realizing perhaps where things didn't exactly go right for me let's say Um, and I think that's what I've come to realize and, and the conclusions that I've come to is that mindfulness and, and talking about emotions as well and asking how does that make you feel um, can be really powerful. Such an important question for, you know, every part of our life cycle, really, from being a little one, little activists, as you said, mm. to big activists. And, yeah. You know, it's so there are so many wonderful 
family things that you can do. And by God, don't anyone listening, please don't think I'm one of those um, airy fairy kind of. Oh, I'm so I'm so lovely and everything's <laughs> so great. I'm not that person at all. You know, right now I'm having a glass of red wine. Mm. My children are in the other room swearing at the moment. You know, it's all very normal here, but. There are so many lovely, normal things you can do together as a family. And, you know, one of the big things that we find it easy to engage with our kids over with climate change is from cooking and getting our food and how we do it and how we make food. Mm. And so we talk about what we're going to have for dinner and what we feel like today and then, you know, we try and make it as plant-based as possible mm. but if it's where it's not plant-based we talk about things that are better for the environment etc yeah it's a really good way to have the conversation with them and it's fun and you get them cooking and it's all, all great oh, and trying adorable. to get things from your own garden it's just a really fun way and you know, they're um they're budding chefs too. I just need to um teach them how I to make it. a gin and tonic, and then I can <laughs> I love it. then I can relax. Also, but. I just want to say that I have been watching your stories religiously with the sagas of the chicken coop and and the boys running around and like just oh my god, I love it's it. So good. It's so good. Oh. Like that is a perfect example of you know kids being engaged with where their food comes from. Like I feel like that's so it's so wholesome. I love it. It's so wonderful. I mean, I, I've I've been a crazy dog lady and a crazy cat lady for years, <laughs> and I have officially graduated to crazy chicken lady. Oh, gosh. I didn't realize it would happen so readily, but I actually like just hang out in the coop, oh, talking to them. the chooks, going, "Oh, I'm such a loser," but it is. It's it's wonderful, and the boys have this connection, and they're all about it, and yeah, it's good fun. Uh, we're we're very happy and very lucky with that aspect, and. Anyone that's considering you know, getting a chicken not to eat but to rear out mm. there, I highly recommend it. Good fun with the kids and scrambled eggs every morning. <laughs> Fresh scrambled eggs. Love it. Oh, my Lord. It's good. <laughs> um, all right. So what th- – this is a bit of a funny question, but I like to ask mm. this one to people. What um, climate activism or mental health question do you think someone really needs to ask you that they still haven't asked? Ooh. That is a really good question. I feel like you've done such a great job with the questions that you've asked. And I feel like I've kind of not necessarily flexed per se, but kind of explored a lot of things that are very personal to me and really influence the way that I am as an activist. But if there's one thing that I I love to talk about and, and try to champion is this concept that you mentioned at the start, this mental health and the Anthropocene. And I think I think it's a really great way to define that. So if someone were to say, what on earth does that mean? Because that's Anthropocene is a bit of a (laughs) word. You know, some folks have heard of it. Other people are like, well, the hell speak English woman. Um, The Mm. Anthropocene is kind of the period of time that we define as being dominated by human influence. And we live in the Anthropocene. So I don't know if folks have heard of the Holocene before, the Eocene, the Miocene, all of these different scenes as it were so we live in the anthropocene and it's not actually like a designated time period within the scientific community but it's kind of like a colloquial neologism like a word that's kind of emerged um as a result of living in this time and i think that there is so much to be said about how we move through this space and time um and how these situations that we're in are very very unique um and how these things can really greatly impact our mental health and i don't i don't really know if folks have seen but like time and time again we get articles about how people are more depressed these days how our connection with nature is fading how folks are really um overwhelmed by the capitalistic system and one can argue yes mental health diagnoses are increasing and therefore we might see a rise in certain mental health cases but actually there is a lot to be said just about the environment that we live in and how that's negatively impacting younger people especially like gen z who have to carry the weight of the world and what that entails and so yeah if if there was a question it would kind of be unpacking what that term means and and thinking about that from Mm. a personal perspective like how is your mental health influenced by existing in this realm Mm, how can we anthropocene like some bosses (laughs) love it um another kind of um airy fairy crystal ball gazing question for you before we um crack on with my last 13 quick short answer questions so my my question before that is what does 
climate activism look like to you in 10 years' time? Oh, wow. This is going to be almost like a utopia because I, I want to remain hopeful. Mm. Um, chickens everywhere. Chickens everywhere. World domination back now. <laughs> to, though, to be <laughs> fair, birds are in numbers. Chickens are the most uh, numerous bird on the planet, which... Really? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think pigeons and seagulls, but then I guess with like the animal agriculture industry and, and kind of how wide scale it is and and stuff, chickens chickens are everywhere. Um, so for me, oh, activism in the future is inclusive. We're in a mm-hmm. in a place and space where representatives of the global south um, and marginalized communities are still given center stage and have a lot of agency and knowledge that they can share in their on their own terms with the world there are um spheres of influence where activists can speak up about a cause and their voices are heard where activism is taken seriously because i think a lot of the time folks are just like oh that annoying activist or what exactly is activism or you know like Mm -hmm. it's kind of seen as a that person's an activist, but I hope that in the future everyone is an activist to some degree. Um, and also, yeah, like I mentioned, these these stages for these conversations to happen between folks who are not in a political sphere um, or everyday folks to raise their voices and to express kind of how how we can mitigate this this change and how we can best facilitate um, moving forward. And I also want to imagine a world where activism is paid. (laughs) Mm, That'd work. Um, Because I just feel like so much of this is kind of seen as like accessorized work where folks just have a cause that they talk about, but actually they are doing a lot of good for the planet and their time and their labor is important. And, you know, so much of these movements is pioneered without money without people being paid and i mean look at how amazing the climate movement is now and they've not been paid a penny imagine if we get money behind that and you know it is within the realms of the capitalist system and i I think there are definitely ways of of moderating that that um mean that things can be more fair and just but i just feel like if we were to compensate activists for their time and actually give a space and platform where this can be something that people do, um, then perhaps it will change the perceptions of an activist from being sort of a far leftist, uh, home, you know, homeless dropout type vibe. You know, mm. Like there's so many negative connotations about activists, especially within the UK. Um, so. I would be inclined to explore what that would would do. No, I love that. And you're absolutely right. But uh, putting it to a capitalist system, you know, we, we live within a capitalist system. So uh, basically activists and people that are working on climate, they have to make their bread and butter somehow. For sure. Um, and just, just think the power of what they would be able to do if their bread and butter and <laughs> their activism was one. Um, so they didn't have to divide their time. Then it just it makes Makes sense, capitalism aside. All right. Now, we have 13 quick, short answer questions that I am going to fire at you. Are you ready? I am indeed. All right. Home city. Hong Kong. Yay. <laughs> um, Favourite city. Ooh, San Francisco. Mm. Mm. Um, define your personal style or attitude in three words. Thrifted. <laughs> Mm. thrifted circular and introspective oh i love it (laughs) um who is your style icon oh gosh um this is a hard one i would say your average joe next door (laughs) Mm. good choice of name yes um your tips for a greener or more equitable planet? Inclusivity and engaging in conversation. Mm, love it. Um, words to live by or favourite quote? I want to make 
this world a better place than when I came in it. Mm, very good. Um, what is the favourite aspect of your work or your activism? People, meeting people, meeting mm. different people, meeting folks with different perspectives, making friends. Yay. Um, what's your favourite drink? Oh, apple juice. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's, re- that's really, really boring. Um, <laughs> it, it just reminds me of my childhood. But alcoholic drink. I'm gonna, Apple juice is delicious. I'm going to throw in an, it, it, yeah, an alcoholic one is an espresso martini. Okay, good. <laughs> good. I like that yeah. too. But apple juice, I, I concur. It's yeah. delicious stuff. Um, Favourite movie or book? Spirited Away. Uh, yeah, the animation Ooh. by Studio Ghibli. That's my favourite. Oh, yes, mm, that one. Favourite movie. Mm, yeah. Cool. Um, three people you want at your dinner party and why? Ooh, um, this is going to sound so weird and random, but I'm thinking people of influence who can make a difference. So Kim Kardashian. Um, yeah, I know. Ooh. Um, no, no, mm, fair enough. Yeah, Kim Kardashian um, and Malala, because I think Malala's amazing. Um, and also, is it really bad if I say Donald Trump? (laughs) But this is the thing. What a dinner party. See, this is the thing. Um, I, I would consider myself somebody who is very outspoken, but also, um, perhaps can weave in conversations with folks of influence who have a lot of power, uh, in hopes that they walk away from the conversation doing some good so that is my my hope (laughs) i I like that you want to manipulate the president of the united states i'm picking up what you're putting down and i agree yeah i like kim kardashian has a lot of like influence and net worth so hopefully i can convince her to donate to some some grassroots projects or champion the climate cause something of value Mm. um three things always found in your luggage or handbag things so phone it's my my tool i use that for Mm -hmm. uh communication it's a very powerful tool a bottle of water a uh, bottle Mm -hmm. that is uh, reusable i always think it's Mm -hmm. important to stay hydrated that's when i'm my best self and my after the apple juice exactly exactly and (laughs) uh, a planner because you just never know when you're gonna have to jot something down i like to stay organized Good. I love it. Um, when you're not working, we'll find you where? Probably lying on the grass in a forest. I forest bathe very, very regularly. Or painting. Painting is my, my downtime. Yeah. That's nice. Mm. Um, and lastly, before we go, what is your advice for someone looking to improve their understanding of their own mental well-being? I would say... First and foremost, if you are not really sure where to start, there are lots of resources on the internet. If you feel like you might be suffering from a particular condition, there are also resources within your um, medical professionals' practices as well. Bearing in mind, not all medical professionals are very clued up on mental health, so hopefully you can get referred to a specialist. I think it's always really, really good to explore um these options within the medical realm but also if you can therapy i think therapy is something that everyone should do just like exploring Mm -hmm. your emotions um and also yeah like i've mentioned these online communities you never know what you might stumble across or what you might learn i've had folks reach out to me before saying i think i might have what you have like the fact that you've brought attention to it has Mm. made me think more about my behavior and how that's impacted so find find a community a healthy wholesome community online i love it tori and i love you thank you so much for joining us um and uh what uh, enjoy the rest of your day thank go you. and use your coffee thank you. have your apple juice oh, I will do. end up with an espresso martini yes and in between do your ass kicking good shit lady because <laughs> we're you. all loving watching oh, it. oh thank you and thank you for having me i i've really thoroughly enjoyed it Thank you for listening to Giving a Fuck is the New Black. Today's show was hosted by me, Joe Lorenz, produced by Lucy Lucroft and brought to you by Conscious Citizen Co. If you've enjoyed today's show, please remember to subscribe via iTunes. And if you'd like to learn more about today's guest or get in touch with me, then please head to our website, ConsciousCitizen.co. 
Until next time, folks, please consider giving a couple of likes.